Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Cholley. Rounding off Prime Minister's Week. All this week, we've been marking the fact that it's 300 years on Saturday since Robert Walpole became Britain's first Prime Minister. We've already looked at what it takes to be PM, how you win at PMQs, and spoken to Jonathan Lynn, the co-creator of Yes Prime Minister. You can obviously listen back to all of those. But today, we're looking into the future and the man who'd like to be the 56th person to move into number 10, Keir Starmer. We've convened our latest Times Radio focus group with James Johnson and Ketsu. CNC, uh, as we ask uh, a panel of swing voters in red wall seats, do they think Keir Starmer's up to the job of being PM? That's coming up later in the episode, but first it's our columnist panel. It's Thursday, so it must be night at the Marriott. It's India Night and James Marriott. First of all, we're going to tackle just the small uh, topics uh, today. Uh, the very nature of uh, of humanity, uh, James. You, uh, in fact, both of you sort of written on similar themes of what it means to be a human and what we want out of life. And James, you tackled it in a piece for the Times this week. Yeah, well, I think because I'm an English literature graduate, I'm always on the lookout for news stories about bankers uh, having a bad time or people who've gone into finance to make lots of money having um, horrible times in their career. So I was fascinated by the story that came out last week about the junior Goldman Sachs bankers who were complaining that because of working from home, um, the incredibly long hours they're working at Goldman Sachs were just becoming totally intolerable. So they were saying they were working 100-hour weeks, um, some of them were saying they didn't have time to buy groceries or even eat. A couple of them said they'd lost as much as two stone weight. They couldn't shower. They're essentially kind of living under conditions of solitary confinement. And this kind of sort of fascinated me because I was thinking, what is your kind of attitude to life and the way that you live, that you allow your life to become like that? And these are people working at Goldman Sachs. They could have presumably done, you can do any career, you know, if you can get a job at Goldman Sachs or all kinds of options open to you. But to kind of put yourself through this torture... And it kind of made what what I kind of ended up thinking was, I think it kind of says something about sort of um, our modern attitudes to human nature and especially in the workplace is that we view our human nature and our human limitations as something that we can overcome and crush and push aside and transcend. Um, so the piece I wrote, I sort of connected this eventually to all kinds of sort of phenomenon, phenomena, but um, especially interesting, I think, is the transhumanism movement in Silicon Valley, which is popular with people like uh, Elon Musk and Peter Thiel, which basically sort of dreams of a future in which humans will technologically augment themselves with bionic arms or intellectual kind of pills and stuff to make you think better. But also it's, it's this idea that actually, if only we could remove all the, the annoying things like sleep, food, you know, toileting, uh, we could get so much more done. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's also the idea that we can overcome, we can get past these bits of human nature is is really kind of something I think a lot of tech companies are interested in. I think there's a kind of theory in big tech companies that one of the, you know, a major 
Um, I mean, I'm sure they never say this explicitly, but a major problem for them is in terms of having in your phone all the time, advertising to you all the time, is the fact that you sleep. And the fact that we sleep less and less because of our phones means that we spend more time on our phones, we've been advertised at more. And all these natural human functions, I think, for tech companies are often, you know, um, sort of objects in the way of monetizing us and um, making money out of our making money out of us. India, are you, are you concerned that, that, we, that we're, or, or maybe you're going to embrace transhumanism? No, I do not embrace uh, trans- <laughs> at all. I, I, I'm repelled by the idea. I think it's a form of insanity, actually. Um, I, th- <laughs> I think striving for perfection generally is a form of insanity because you can never attain it and you can only drive yourself mad in, in the process. Um, also, I think that being, I think it's really sort of disrespectful to the idea of humanity and what makes us human and what makes us human isn't trying desperately and failing to develop superhuman powers to not sleep and not eat and go to the loo in a plastic bag like the poor employees at um, Amazon in uh, James's excellent column. You know, the things that connect us and make us make us people and communities are the little things that Elon Musk would find very irritating. You know, so, for example, during lockdown, I have really, really missed tiny, inane conversations with strangers. Now, you know, just kind of good morning. Hello. Ooh, I like the look of your potatoes. You know, whatever. I like your dog. Um, in thing to what you were saying um, earlier, the people, I'd just like to say the people who bag up the poo and then hang it from a tree are the worst people. In the <laughs> but anyway, um, but, but, but it's all those little things that make us feel connected. And so the idea that these things are faults or that they get in the way of greater progress is literally lunatic to me. Uh, the thing that um, really struck me, James, in your piece, in talking about Silicon Valley, is the way that uh, and particularly businesses have used the last 12 months. But because we, don't have, we haven't been able to have social lives, uh, we haven't been able to go to the pub or a restaurant or the theatre, whatever it is, they were sort of, this is great, we've cut out all of the, you know, this is all more time that we can take for us and for our, for our businesses. I remember speaking to someone who um, uh, worked at Facebook who said that when you arrive, it's all very exciting and there's, you know, because there's a gym there and there's showers there and there's a restaurant there and there's even toothbrushes in the, in the toilets because, you know, people, you know, so that people can break. This is great, they're really looking after us. And actually what they find is that what they're doing is owning you and that they particularly get graduates straight out of university who can't really look after themselves. Facebook looks after themselves and their entire life is sort of caught up in Facebook-branded toothbrushes and, and all of that. And then, but then they own every, every second of your life. Yeah, and I mean, that's kind of, I mean, that's so sort of baked into the whole philosophy of, of tech companies and that's to do with how they treat their employees and then also, as you say, how they, how they want to treat us. And I think the lockdown thing is really interesting because lockdown has increased isolation, kept us all on our own in our little boxes. We've been much more sort of, I think, exploitable. And those aspects of human nature that you and India were talking about, you know, our need to socialise, our need to kind of waste time. These are all things that I think are at risk. So, for example, the, you know, the rise of um, companies like Ocado and stuff delivering groceries to, to your door. Again, that's another way I think of suddenly it seems very convenient and it might make your life more efficient, but I think maybe what you end up realising when you get into doing that regularly is that suddenly you've lost, like, you know, chatting to the cashier, seeing the neighbour you might have seen, and suddenly those little kind of bits of life that, you know, might not seem important, but I think cumulatively make us humans and make us who we are begin to kind of be sort of scrubbed away. And I think, yeah, the point of my column was that we have to be quite vigilant about that. And in, the, in your column uh, in the Sunday Times, you, you sort of love letter to shopping and not even necessarily buying anything. 
just to pottering about in the outside world. <laughs> I'm so, so, so looking forward to it. Um, but again, it's yes, exactly. It's, it wasn't specifically about having the urge to spend money, which I don't particularly. It's it, I, I'm just very excited by the idea of my local high street with all the shops open and people standing chatting on pavements, outside cafes. You know, I was trying to write a cheerful and optimistic column because there is so much doom and everything feels so awful at the moment. I was trying to think of things to look forward to and that is very much one of them. Just just making inane conversation with people I don't know on pavements. That'll do me. And, and just going around and touching, reading your comic really sort of... Almost what a tear to the eye. Going at the idea of going around touching clothes or opening books and smelling the pages in a bookshop and all that stuff that you just don't get from browsing a website. No matter, I think as you said, no matter no, how nice the not. website might look, you can't exactly. I mean, it's not a tactile or a sensual experience in any shape or form. And I think what James says about Ocado is really interesting. Or other supermarket delivery services services that we've all relied on over over the last year on and off. You know, the idea that. The, they, they're sold to us because they're convenient and also in the last 12 months that they're safe, you know, that you're doing something good by not hanging out in the giant waitrose, which is true probably. Lots of, you know, you don't, you don't want to be licking supermarket trolley handles necessarily. But <laughs> it's a very false sense of security and it cocoons you away from the world and it makes you dependent on these sort of rather sinister anonymous entities and I think it's really to be resisted. I hope very much that the high street, that local high streets, rather than big department stores, which I think are in trouble. Um, I think I hope very much that uh, uh, local high streets are going to see a kind of great resurgence uh, because I think that makes people comfortable. You know, little shops with known people who say, "I've got some good tomatoes in today," or "This dress might suit you," or "I put this book aside for you." You know, that's what you want. That's what you miss, and that's what the crazy idea of giving our souls over to tech. Um, is 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 well is against <laughs> and in terms of this it's sort of interesting that no all the political debate about uh lockdowns and coronavirus and, and what it's, it's all nobody's really talked about these the the human beings involved in it particularly it's either people talk very much about the economy there's a sort of uh there's a debate about civil liberty to some extent but just no it doesn't feel like there's anyone who is verbalized well what everyone has been feeling in the last 12 months james yeah well i mean i think when people do talk about it it's in terms of you know will you get to visit your gran at christmas and those mm. kind of family relationships which i think are easy to sell because they're kind of obvious ones but mm. yeah i think i think that kind of secondary tier of like people you randomly bump into and like chatting to you know people you only see around the office people you just see in shops that's the kind of stuff that it's sort of i think it's probably a weird sell for politicians or anyone because you know saving the world from a global pandemic by everyone um, being careful and uh, staying indoors versus not getting to chat to like the local butcher is a kind of seems like a bit of a mismatch. But I think maybe it's thing when you realize now we're on the other side of it, that when you look back on cumulatively all those hundreds of lost conversations that we can now say, oh, we actually have lost something. When you put all that together, that's something quite big that we've lost. It does mm-hmm. just, just feel like it, but it, it, this could be a Boris Johnson moment. You know, if anyone can verbalize in a slightly peculiar way, the 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 small things that make us all human. Maybe it is Boris Johnson in you. Yes, with um, seven too many mixed metaphors. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yes, absolutely. I mean, he should. He he. 
ought to be able to do that quite well, actually. And he ought, he should seek to articulate it because I think James is exactly right. The stuff that is getting people down and has been grinding people down is all, uh, are all these little tiny interactions that individually seem negligible, you know, really not important. You'd bear in the normal course of a normal life, you'd barely remember them. But actually, their absence is really keenly felt, I think. Uh, but as we've brought up Boris Johnson, let's focus on... He, he's been in the news for many reasons uh, this week. Aside from coronavirus, uh, we've had uh, Jennifer R. Curie with the shock revelation that she may have had an affair with Boris Johnson. <laughs> um, uh, Carrie Simons, uh, his current uh, fiancé, uh, uh, is the charity she works for, now being investigated over concerns about the management of conflicts of interest. David Cameron, obviously, in the news because of uh, Greens Hill and his... Um, uh, involvement in this company, which has uh, since gone bust and lobbying uh, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, on their behalf. Uh, Labour seemed to be trying to get up this idea of there was sort of, you know, it's a return to Tory sleaze. Is that going to stick, do you think, India? I don't know. I think that the Cameron and the Johnson-Simon thing are kind of polar opposites. I mean, it's been reported in the Times and the Sunday Times that Cameron privately told friends that he thought he was he would make about 60 million from this one deal while he was in office. I think, I don't know, I, my, my suspicion is that that's more money that greedy old Tony Blair has made since <laughs> leaving office. <laughs> so from one deal as a, as a sitting prime minister, I think it's extraordinarily sleazy. It's just awful. And that by comparison... The stuff, leaving uh, Jennifer Okuri out of it for a minute, the stuff about the doing up of the flat in 10 Downing Street and uh, Johnson scrabbling around to find money to finance various things, because, of course, his salary as prime minister is much smaller than his salary was as a um, as an MP and a columnist and an after-dinner speaker and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I think that in a really weird way, the fact that he's scrabbling for money visibly scrabbling for money reflects quite well on him that he I mean you know at least he isn't lining up really super shady shifty greedy deals to you know redo the flat in the splendor that that that, that is required so yeah I mean I'm not a tremendous cheerleader for Johnson <laughs> but I think the business about the flat shouldn't get mixed up with the Cameron stuff which is properly old school 1980s style sleaze <laughs> Uh, James, I mean, obviously, um, were you even born in the 1980s? No, no I, I, was, I wasn't around for 80s sleaze. Uh, um, <laughs> well, I'm sure you've read about it in some history books. But do you think that, I mean, given that, uh, whether it's the uh, MP's expenses scandal, you, you know, um, and obviously it was sort of all John Majors back to base, and all, do, is it just a nonsense, that, the, the idea that people hold politicians to a different standard now, that rightly or wrongly, some of this stuff just gets shrugged off? Well, of course that goes on. Of course... Somebody's mate gets a contract. Of course, he's having an affair. Of course, you know, rich people are trying to get richer. And rightly or wrongly, it's just seen partly as, you know, part of life. Yeah, I, I'm finding this fascinating because, I mean, I think that comparison with, you know, the MPs' expenses scandals and stuff is really interesting because I think it's a slight matter of our kind of shifting political culture. Because when you look back into the, you know, the early 2000s and, um, you know, David Blunkett resigning, um, because he fast-tracked his nanny's visa application, which I think in the context of a lot of the stuff we're talking about yeah. now probably looks relatively minor. But I think it's the way that that, that, news, that the way that Boris Johnson's personality functions, as people always say, he's kind of got that Teflon quality. It's probably priced into people's assumptions about Boris Johnson that, well, he looks kind of 
like a slightly dodgy guy with the hair and the sort of attitude and the <laughs> string of children and mistresses. So when you discover that he's done something dodgy, you just kind of go, oh, yeah, well, that figures. I mean, and I think <laughs> yeah. if anything, that's, kind of, that's the kind of, that's almost why the Cameron stuff, in a way, in a weird way, seems more newsworthy. Because I think, even though I don't think anyone thought, you know, David Cameron was like a moral genius, I think he, we thought in his old Etonian way, he was probably a kind of relatively decent guy. He did yeah. literally give yeah. speeches talking about uh, lobbying and uh, lobbying was going to be the next big scandal and we've got to do something mm. about it. And former minister, yeah. I dug out a speech, I think it was from 20, uh, what would it have been? The early 2010, so before the election, and there was a you know, there's a lobbying scandal and he said, we've got to do something differently and we won't fall into this trap. And he, yeah, he's, he's completely fallen into that trap. Uh, what, do you, what would you advise uh, David Cameron to do, India, to try and get himself out of this hole? God, he's probably holed up in his shepherd's hut, <laughs> rocking and forth like the polar bears used to at London Zoo. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's certainly I, not answering anybody's calls, it seems to no, be the main thing. I think he should probably pipe up. I think he should probably, I mean, I think it's a good rule in life, whether you're a politician or not. You know, when you do something terrible, just own up to it. Own up to it. Don't go and hide under a bush or inside a hut or round a corner or, you know, just, just come clean i mean it may be that this is all an enormous misunderstanding i really really don't think so um it doesn't look like that the reportage has been amazing uh i think he needs to say something because otherwise he compounds the thing by by looking like he doesn't really care he doesn't care he's really rich he's got his big house you know he didn't make an extra 60 million never mind and now he's not even going to bother to answer any questions anybody might have about it so i think it's a really bad look it's arrogant and it's complacent and there's something sort of horribly self-satisfied about it and careless <laughs> what, what do you think Jane? yeah i mean i think it's actually i think what india said was fascinating and i think this is dangerous for david cameron because this is a matter of his legacy and you know you think how much of a legacy does he have does he have in the first place you know yeah the brexit strapped. referendum isn't a great thing yeah. to take into posterity with you and you kind of think you want to be doing, you want, what you at least want to be doing is in your kind of post prime minister time, uh, you want to be sort of building an image of yourself as someone who's conscientious and probably charitable and getting across an image to the public of yourself that, yes, well, maybe you made mistakes in office, but you're basically a decent person. And now that kind of remaining chance you had at building a legacy and um, a sort of picture of yourself for history is just kind of, you're evaporating that. And I think. Yeah, this is this may be how we now remember David Cameron, or at least a significant part of it, and that seems dangerous for him to me. You'd think he might have mentioned it in, in his enormously fat and very boring memoir. <laughs> <laughs> that was Indian Night and James Marriott then. Of course, we can read them both in The Times. You just need to get yourself a Times digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, our focus group on a year of Kia. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. It is the honour and the privilege of my life to be elected as leader of the Labour Party. We support measures to protect health. We will support them. We will vote for them. I support the restrictions. I've done so every single time. You know that a circuit break is needed now. He talks about hindsight. I say catch up. Yes, yeah, so Keir Starmer marks uh, one year as leader leader of the Labour Party this week. This weekend, in fact. Um, uh, so we thought this was the perfect way to round off Prime Minister's Week, which we'll be marking all this week here on Times Radio, uh, marking 300 years since we got our first Prime Minister. On Monday, we looked at how you build the perfect PM. On Tuesday, we spoke to the creator of Yes Prime Minister, Jonathan Lynn. And yesterday, we looked at how you win it PMQs. Well, if you missed any of that, you can listen back to all of them on the Times Red Box podcast, wherever you get your podcast from. So, yeah, today we're talking about the future. Does Keir Starmer have what it takes to become our 56th Prime Minister? Exactly a year after he became Labour leader, we've convened the Times Radio focus group uh, to see what voters make of him. And we're joined, as ever, by former number 10 pollster James Johnson, who ran the polling for number uh, number 10 when Theresa May was Prime Minister. Uh, and he carried it out, as ever, this time with uh, the help of global communications firm Kex CNC. Hi, James. Hello. So before we dive into what the focus group said, could you please do the traditional um, uh, hazard warning health check on uh, what uh, focus groups are for? We're not saying they're representative. Why are they different and uh, useful when it comes to um, uh, uh, opinion polls? Absolutely. So focus groups, they're a selection of around six to eight people uh, who match a certain specification. So here... We're looking at swing voters, those voters who half of them voted Labour in 2019, half of them voted Conservative in 2019. And they're now broadly undecided about how they'd vote if there was an election. Um, we've also added in an extra thing this time round, which we've looked in particular areas where Labour lost seats uh, to the Conservatives at the last election. So these respondents are from a mix of uh, a couple of seats in Birmingham, Dudley North and Bolton Northeast. And the key hazard warning really is that these are not intended to be a definitive view of what the public in these places thinks. They're a small selection of people. You can only do that with a bigger a bigger sample in a poll, but it does give you a sense of the kind of things voters are saying, talking about and thinking when it comes to the Labour Party and Keir Starmer. And also it does tell us something. If you, if you literally collect eight people at random, chosen by a market research company, and they all end up saying broadly the same thing, there might be something in it, you know, that, that might make, uh, mean political leaders and political parties listening to it. Right, let's dive in then. And uh, we did something new this time, which I'm aware doesn't necessarily always work brilliantly on the radio, but um, getting them to write down just a word that sums up uh, leaders and parties and that sort of thing. So let's take a listen, first of all, to what happened when you asked them to write down a word which sums up the Labour Party. I put the word weak. Uh, change. Uh, so Keir Starmer takeover, nothing. Keir is obviously a, a big change and change to to come. 
I've gone with lost. Um, they were the people's choice, especially working class people. All my family were laboured through and through, but they just lost the votes with how things were going. Corbyn ruined it. Um, so Keir Starmer, as much as I've got quite a soft spot for him, I think he goes off on a tangent and he's lost his views and he just doesn't get anyone's vote anymore. I don't really know what I think of them. I think they used to be really popular, like a lot of people used to vote for them. Um, and now I just think more people are going towards conservatives. I've put two words, I've put positive and change. Um, I think that Keith Stammer is actually a challenge. Um, I've seen him on Breakfast TV quite, quite often um, in the, the past months and everything, and he is challenging what Boris Johnson's doing. And I think that's good. Uh, I've put hindsight. Hindsight, and that we will come back to that, I'm sure, because obviously quite a lot of what people said about the Labour Party is tied up in the leadership. Um, one year after the, uh, well, a bit, a bit more than that now, nearly 18 months since that terrible election result for the Labour Party in 2019, that's not a that's not a dreadful collection of thoughts about the Labour Party um, right now, is it, James? No, it's not dreadful, and, and as you say, you know that defeat in in twenty nineteen was was very very significant. One lady there talking about how actually perhaps Keir Starmer, perhaps the Labour Party has gone in a new direction in the last year. I expect that Labour Party would be quite happy to hear that, considering their slogan is a new leadership and it's all about moving on from the past. But at the same time, you heard amongst quite a lot of people there, uh, it's sad, lost, uh, weak. Those continuing concerns about who the Labour Party stands up for and just it's it's interesting Matt because they often talk about it in reference to the past so they know that this Labour Party used to exist that they used to be for working class people that used to be for them and that seems to have faded away now for one lady there as you heard that seems to be changing but for the others the brand has not significantly altered in the last year. OK, well, let's um, uh, zero in, because we're obviously we're doing this to mark the fact that he's, uh, Keir Starmer has been leader of the Labour Party for a year. So let's take a listen now to what they said uh, when you asked them to sum up Keir Starmer in a word. I've gone argumentative, which isn't a bad thing. It's just the first thing that comes to mind. He's always arguing with somebody or not agreeing with everything. It's the same as what I had before, hindsight, really. I think, he's, I think a lot of what he says is, you know, especially over the last six, nine months, it's all, it's all well and good saying it now. You know, anyone on this call could have sat there and said, we should have done this sooner, we should have done that sooner, we should have done the other. I just put not strong enough. Nice. <laughs> he seems <laughs> nice, but that's all I know about him, really. Yeah, I've got um, lots of work ahead. got an awful lot of work to do to win the people over. I've got power. Um, he Power because he seems to come across to me, in my opinion, as he's been, he's powerful. Uh, I'll put uh, media friendly. I think he he looks the part. He, he acts the part. He's sort of young and fresh compared to uh, Jeremy Corbyn, obviously. Um, whether there is any substance, I think only time will tell. Is there any substance? Only time will tell. We'll come on to, uh, to that in a minute. Do you... Do you, would a leader of a party who's been in the job for 12 months expect uh, better uh, words than that, uh, James Johnson? Well, it's, it's difficult to know, isn't it? Because obviously we are in this really sort of quite exceptional period at the moment with the pandemic. Now, on the one hand, you could say, look at what's happened over the last year. Look at the difficulties the government's faced. Look at some of those 
uh, you know, sort of blunders that took place last year. You, you might expect Labour to be further ahead. Um, we're also, of course, 11 years into a Conservative government. On the flip side, you could say, well, actually, the pandemic has suspended politics in some sense. And, and perhaps actually uh, considering the, the gravity of Labour's defeat last time, this isn't so bad. But I think uh, it, it's broadly where actually we ran a poll in the Red Wall earlier this week. And Keir Starmer is on a net minus 3%. And that is pretty much reflected in, in, in the comments you've just heard. It's sort of narrowly negative, but it's not a sense of a complete sort of brand poisoning. People aren't viewing him like Corbyn. They're not viewing him even like a Miliband. But the jury is out a bit and people do have a sense towards towards the negative. It's also very worth saying just quickly, Matt, that what's not the issue um, that they bring up, and I think barely at all in this focus group and in others, um, do we get them talking about Keir Starmer's position on Brexit, for example. Um, and actually, we don't really get mention of some of the culture war issues that you see talked about all the time on Twitter <laughs> in their hesitations about Keir Starmer. So, you know, Labour, Labour could look at Twitter and think, you know, goodness me, we've got quite a challenge on our hands here. But actually, those two issues aren't really coming out with these voters. You're almost suggesting that Twitter is not the same as the rest of the country. I find that very, very hard to believe. Um, let's uh, let's focus a bit more, drill into a bit more detail on this. When you you pressed them on, uh, what what could they be positive about? What how would they? Uh, what, let's focus on Keir Starmer's positives. I think um, he um, speaks very well. Might not be the content that we want, but I think he, he's got a very good aura when he speaks um, like on the news and stuff. And I think he, he could represent England as like much better than Boris. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, he comes across really well, to be fair, when you listen to him speak. I say, whether it, uh, what he says he's, you know, has got any value to it, but the way he presents himself and comes across, I think he certainly looks the part. It's whether there's any, you know, whether there's any substance beyond the oil, I guess. Yeah, I think I agree with the last last two. He does, uh, as I've said, media-friendly. He looks um, like a leader. Uh, he comes across. He doesn't. He wouldn't be an embarrassment, as I think others uh, would be. I do think well, that's someone important. That's someone who he, he believes in uh, uh, labour and, and for perhaps the working class and try to help people and uh, get you know let people get on. So time and again, uh, one name that kept coming up was Jeremy Corbyn, and this sense that one of the best things Keir Starmer has going for him is he's not Jeremy Corbyn. You know, he looks the part. He's smarter. Um, uh, he comes on the telly and, he, you know, he looks like a prime minister, which actually is, it might be superficial, but that's a big part of persuading people you could be a, a good prime minister. Absolutely. And uh, this is one thing that I think is a very important corrective to those who criticise Keir Starmer. Uh, yes, we obviously asked about positives there, but you, know, you do get people saying perhaps they don't know what Keir Starmer stands for and they worry a little bit about that. Now, that's a point uh, I think uh, I think we both made on, on social media, um, and certainly it came out strongly from that poll I mentioned. And I have received an onslaught of uh, you know, tweets and messages, uh, people completely convinced um, that, that Corbyn is the solution to this. They need to get back to the left-wing roots. They need to get back to the politics that Corbyn espoused. That is not the solution. Very clearly from these swing voters, they are saying do not go back there. It's a slight improvement. We're still worried about the Labour brand, but it's 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 a damn sight better than it was under Jeremy Corbyn. So that was the positives. He looks the part, even if they're not always completely convinced by what he actually says. Let's find out what they uh, said when you asked them about the negatives about Keir Starmer. I think he's not that different to, uh, to, to Boris, I think, that in terms of the... the where he's going in, in the, his views, um, he's not. He's certainly not left wing. He doesn't appear. The fact that he's got 
a sir in front of his name would would probably put off many voters as they see him as a elitist and you know that he's not really a working you know from working class roots from the like the old uh, leaders were from, from many years ago. I was going to say something very, very similar, that the sir, um, like, like that chap said, it's elitist, you know, he was a barrister, wasn't he, and everything. Um, so people might think he's not approachable or, or whatever. He, he is in the same, you know, class as Boris, isn't he? I actually wrote down the, the same word as uh, Anne-Marie just said, which is the word sir. And, um, you know, would he... Would he, does he totally understand uh, the working class person? Well, I agree with what Jeff just said. Um, I think people need to be able to relate to the um, leader, and some people that are working class won't be able to relate. They haven't, he hasn't experienced what working class people have experienced with like the locks of education. This is really interesting, James, because we, we've talked before about the, the knighthood and uh, there was a point where the Tories, you know, st- trying to use that as a sort of stick to beat him with. And other people said, actually, you know, he's been rewarded by the Queen for doing a good job. That all sort of ticks a pat- patriot- patriotism box. Uh, but actually, it was interesting that they, they were all quite down on him having a knighthood. Yeah, it doesn't uh, necessarily uh, gel with all of the focus groups have done, as you say, where other groups people have been more positive. I do think it probably does speak, though, to a this sort of concern about the brand of the Labour Party and who it stands up for, which obviously heightens any sort of uh, any any sort of way that Keir Starmer positions himself. Um, and b, I think it speaks to this sort of um, general frustration that people have with the kind of people who who represent them. And I think that Keir Starmer in the suit, um, giving the uh, political lines, looking the part, that might sound positive, but it also brings out this actual, this concern amongst voters that is he really saying what he means? Is he really trying, is he really trying uh, to do the best for the country or is he trying to get votes? And we saw that come through really strongly on our last Times Radio focus group. And I think that's probably engendering a little bit of that there. And that's a danger for Keir Starmer um, because the real sort of premium uh, for voters right now is politicians who, who are, or at least appear to be, authentic. In fact, this uh, this next clip pretty much sums that up. It was, a, it was a message we heard again and again and again, but this question of, of what does Keir Starmer really stand for? That's the trouble. We don't know because we haven't uh, heard enough of it. We don't, there's no airtime because it's all COVID, so I genuinely don't know, but from a personal point of view. I really don't because it's all COVID for the last 12 months plus. So they're slightly giving him the benefit of the doubt, uh, saying maybe it is because of COVID, but the slight suspicion that, and this is a phrase I've used a lot and we've talked about it as well, James, is he keeping his powder dry because of what's happened in the last 12 months hasn't been a great time, or does he have no powder? And there was just this sense coming through from some of the group that they weren't quite sure if there was anything more there than, than looking smart in a suit. Yeah, and it's not a case of... We had that sort of you know, a few months ago and people were fine with that they said give him time it's starting to change a bit now it's starting to become a slight it's starting to engender their views of uh, Keir Starmer himself uh, does what does this guy stand up for and that's generating some concerns but a really key point there that they are always saying um, it's because Covid has dominated so Keir Starmer and Labour Party will be will be happy to hear that because uh, it means that not all voters are saying, well, it's because Keir Starmer hasn't got anything to say. They're saying because of the climate, we may not yet have heard it yet. OK, but in a sec, we're going to look at, because it wasn't just Keir Starmer, we also looked at the, the rest of the team because it came up as a as an issue that, you know, they, they sort of knew a bit about him, but a bit unsure about the, the people around him in the team. Well, so we'll do that next on Times Radio. Matt Chorley, mid-morning on Times Radio. 
OK, let's turn our attention now then to uh, one of the criticisms that came up about the Labour Party, not so much focused on uh, Keir Starmer himself, but uh, the team around him. Yeah, I, I think with what's going on in the last 12 months, you know who the Prime Minister is, who the Deputy Prime Minister, who's the head of the Conservative Party, etc., etc. Apart from Keir Starmer, I'm going to struggle to name any other uh, people in the sort of the, the shadow count the shadow government. I totally agree with Jeff because they haven't been publicised. Apart from the leader, he's on national television all the time. I couldn't even pronounce or write the name of his right-hand man or his left-hand man. Vice versa, female. I haven't got a clue. That's the truth. That's a very good point that, uh, that the other guys have mentioned. That there is a lack of sort of talent at the the top, but apart from Pierce Armour, I think Jess Phillips is a local, like a Birmingham MP, who I think she comes across very well. So, James, we, uh, does this matter really? Does any, did anyone in two thousand and six know who George Osborne was? Uh, did anyone in well ninety four know who the you know who Jack Straw was? Um, are we, do we put too much emphasis on this? So I think it doesn't matter in, in usually because you're often saying to voters, I mean, I've done this hundreds of times, right? You're testing different politicians and you're asking them about different politicians. You get a don't know, you get a blank face, but then they move on. They, they, they've never thought about it before. They don't much care. The interesting thing here was is that voters had actually given this some thought beforehand and this had seemed to be a weakness to them. Now, that therefore suggests that it is taking on, it is again becoming a negative in its own right. Um, and that is perhaps because of their concerns about what Keir Starmer stands for, perhaps looking around for other voices and, and not seeing them. Uh, and they do talk about big beasts in the past. They said, you know, you remember uh, Tony Blair, Gordon, Gordon Brown, and other people talk about, uh, you know, the fact that Rishi Sunak is the Chancellor. They're not seeing that for Labour. Uh, yes, you're absolutely right. We do have low awareness of these figures in the past, absolutely. But it is starting to turn into a negative in its own right in, the, in, in regards to the Labour Party. And it was interesting. They, they brought it up unprompted several times that, you know, yeah. they didn't know about the team. So what you did, this was very smart, is we you, you played clips of some of the members of Keir Starmer's team to the focus group and then asked what they uh, thought of it. There's been a lot of speculation in the last week or so, particularly about Annalise Dodds, the Shadow Chancellor, and whether or not uh, she might even get the sack, uh, as the Sunday Times suggested last weekend. But uh, Keir Starmer giving his full confidence to his Shadow Chancellor this week. But you played them a clip of uh, Annalise Dodds, and this is what they made of her. She was really good. She captured me. She was, to the point, factual, um, very good at speaking, and not, she kept me wanting to listen to more, to be fair to her. A typical politician's, a typical politician's performance. A, uh, the only thing for me was like a, a plan for this, a plan for that, a plan for, for the other. And what is the plan? It's a lot of just uh, a lot of hot air usually. Yeah, um, I thought she was um, more on my wavelength. I'd actually relate to her. I actually, same as um, Siobhan, like, listened to what she had to say. She captured me. Um, yeah, I thought she I thought she spoke well. To be fair, I thought she was clear. I think the first one were better. She captured me more. Uh, this one just reminded me of any other one. Like I, I think if I seen it on the telly, I'd turn it over. <laughs> I mean, th- some some calls for cheer there in the in the Dodds uh, household. Although uh, James, when you asked him, did you know who that was? That is Annalise Dodds, the Shadow Chancellor. There was mostly blank faces. 
Yeah, they didn't know. And I expect uh, a few members of Annalise Dodd's team might be punching the air at those uh, those remarks because it might just show that uh, actually once voters uh, see some of these figures, um, they may well feel, feel a bit more positive. But you heard that criticism coming out again and again uh, about being too much like politi- a politician, uh, just like any other one. Now, in most most of the time in politics, in the early parts of the 2010s, um, that didn't really matter that much because everyone was like that in voters' minds. The problem is, is that despite their uh, hesitations about Boris Johnson. These voters don't feel Boris Johnson is like any other politician. They think he's uh, a character. They think he's new. They think he says what he what he means, and that means that there's this extra scrutiny on whether opposition politicians are really sort of speaking out for themselves or whether they're following a politician's playbook. That's interesting. So actually, being like a professional politician is no longer a, a necessarily a plus. It, you, you needed that sort of extra bit of individuality. Let's take a listen to, to a couple of the others um, that you put to them. Rachel Weaves is currently sh- uh, Michael Gove's shadow at the Cabinet Office, uh, but sometimes talked up as a potential replacement shadow chancellor. You played them uh, a clip of Rachel Weaves. Let's take a listen to what they thought of her. Confidence. Confidence in the shoe. I think she'll come across really, really well. I think she'll come across caring mm. um, and that she's bothered about the people. Yeah, she cra- came across quite empathetic, didn't she, for, for everybody? And she was calm and nicely spoken, quite eloquent. But is that relatable to all? I thought she was like, too too polished, too, you know, put in front of a camera and can just say in words off a screen. I agree with Stuart. She um, wasn't natural at all. I, I have to say whatever she said. It was just very clear and concise. Like the... Yeah, I just thought she wasn't believable. <laughs> Not a ringing endorsement for Rachel Weaves there. It was her um, uh, virtual party conference speech uh, that she was giving. Um, if, if Keir Starmer is looking for a new shadow chancellor, is Rachel Weaves the right person based on that, James? Well, it's pretty mixed. I mean, it's not it's not incredibly negative. It's not incredibly positive, but it's not she's not really standing out and, and, and grabbing these and grabbing these voters any any more or less than Banana Lee Stodds is. Uh, let's take a listen then to uh, Lisa Nandy next. Currently, Shadow Foreign Secretary. I thought she was very good actually. On the she was on uh, Times Radio Breakfast yesterday morning. Was uh, managed to communicate. There's you know I'm a patriot, but I'm not saying the whole country's got you know. She managed to do some of those things which people are looking to Keir Starmer to do, but um, uh, hadn't um, so far landed. Let's you, you played them a clip of uh, Lisa Nandy. Let's take a listen to hear, hear what they thought about her. I think she came across very well. I have uh, have heard of her. She's obviously it's in question time as well, so she's responding to. A question that she might have had an idea, but she's speaking from uh, not just sound bites, really, just saying exactly what she thinks. I thought she was the most relatable. Um, she spoke in real terms, in proper language. What you know, a lot of people don't have high education levels, so she spoke across the board. You know, she she wasn't throwing big jargony words in there. Yeah, it sounded genuine. And sincere, and she got straight to the point. Yeah, I thought she sounded genuine, and she seems like she'd fight our corner. Um, and yes, yeah, she spoke in our language. <laughs> she spoke our language. That's what basically people are looking for, isn't it? That you've been talking about, James. That people want that authenticity, seeming like a a, a normal person who 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 speaks their language. 
Yeah, and out of these uh, top Labour figures that we tested, Lisa and Andy certainly landed the best. And because of that authenticity, it's worth also saying, obviously, we're playing very quick, short clips here. But it's worth also saying that uh, in focus groups that I ran uh, right back at the start of last year, um, while the Labour leadership contest was going on, people said the same thing. So that authenticity uh, uh, strength is is certainly there for Lisa and Andy um, in a way that it's not for some of the other contenders. And a bit wasted at the moment, possibly, is being uh, shadow foreign secretary maybe that's a case for, for sticking her in as shadow chancellor um most of them actually weren't particularly well known but there was one person who you tested who they did know uh, but weren't necessarily all that impressed with this is what they had to say about ed Miliband. i thought he was well i've seen we've seen him before to be fair i've actually forgot he was in the party which is quite, he's quite worrying um but uh it, i just thought passionate about you know about it I'm, I'm, I'm not his biggest fan, to be honest. So. Yeah, well, there's two brothers uh, in the Labour Party at the time. One is articulate and the other one wasn't. Uh, the, the one we just watched wasn't. Yeah, um, he, he didn't really know what he was talking about, in my opinion. He was reading from a script. <laughs> Uh, poor old Ed Miliband. Um, I thought he'd, he was, you know, I, I was under the impression that people were warming to him since he'd stopped being Labour leader. What do you make of it, Jade? Uh, I'm, I'm afraid that might be a you might be a victim of the bubble there, Matt. <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the he does he does get you know he does get plaudits in Westminster. Uh, he does get uh, plaudits um, uh, generally, but uh, the public you could see that some actually sort of quite liked the speech he was given, and it was his uh, speech about the environment that he did recently. Um, but it came back to what they knew about him. And the impressions that he formed between 2010 and 2015 haven't really left these voters, and that's going to be very hard to overcome. So putting all this together now, what's the what's the message that Keir Starmer should take away? Is it time for him to start fleshing things out a bit? Does he need to be a bit more authentic? And should he make Lisa Nandy a shadow chancellor? Well, I think certainly no leader wants to spell out their entire policy position right now, but there needs to be more vision. I think that's the really clear message from these voters. Uh, they are not writing him off, but they are worried that he sits on the fence. They are worried about what he stands for, and they are worried about whether he he, he looks for votes. So it's that combination of a vision and also getting across that sense of authenticity, getting across that sense of what he stands for in the country. And it's also about making sure to, I think, take gambles. Um, voters in this group, they were quite negative about uh, the idea of Labour going to the left, and they were actually quite negative about Labour going to the right, because they said, what about if Labour becomes too much like the Conservatives? But if you don't pick one of those paths, it's pretty clear from our voters here that you end up in this sort of no man's land and people <laughs> sort of shrug their shoulders, put their hands up and don't quite know what he stands for. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times radio show. You can listen to the whole thing. Uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1, is available on DAB, online, via Smart Speaker or on the Times radio app. If you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. 
Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.